0: Ladies and gents, welcome back. It's your favorite, Elliot at Engineers. Offline, I've just been speaking to Andre about the biggest and best smile in the world um, that he has <laughs> that you'll see in the next couple of moments. So um, everyone welcome Andre at uh, Causalens. He's he's going to be talking to us um, something that is super prevalent at the moment, and Causalens is a business claim to understand or reason better for what's happening in uh, global economies. Okay, and we're going to break that down and dissect it, and help them understand, or they can help us understand. In fact, um, how they best help their comp sorry, their customers do what they do. Andre, do you want to give us an intro into you? Your role at Causa lens and let's break down Causa lens as a business uh, over the next 20-30 minutes and understand a little bit more about you guys and girls, what you do, how you do things.
1: Perfect. Well, first, thank you very much for the introduction, for the very warm Pleasure. introduction. And... Yes, uh, about about me, well, let me just tell you who I am and how I ended up at Causalence. I'm the stereotypical quant. I did my PhD in physics. I was studying black holes. Then I ended up working at Goldman Sachs for five years. Uh, Goldman Sachs, was responsible for validating models. So basically trying to understand what is the risk of the usage of quantitative models within the firm and within the financial sector in general. Uh, that was a very interesting okay. role because you get access to essentially everything that the firm uses, and you get to understand from a more technical level why some of the you know crazy things that happened in the past uh, you know well ever since computers arrived at, uh, in finance you get to understand why they happen for, from a technical point of view, and this role was essentially created and enforced by regulators after 2008. Uh, because there was a serious lack of oversight into how firms dealt with uh, financial models. Uh, Yeah, after this stint at Goldman, I I realized that actually I wanted to do a little bit more in terms of really understanding what is the best way to apply machine learning in finance and how to overcome some of the issues uh, that exist. Uh, within machine learning, and I hope we, we, we can definitely go deeper into that. So I joined uh, Causal Lens a little bit over six months ago, which uh, right now feels like an eternity. And uh, my role <laughs> at Causal Lens, I'm the director of Applied Data Science, and I'm primarily responsible for ensuring that customers, they get as much value as possible from the usage of our product. So we are at Causal Lens. We're roughly 50 people right now. We've been doubling every year since the inception of the company, and we're hoping to double again uh, by the end of this year, uh, if everything goes well. If there is a positive outlook for the world again, we we aim to to get to 100. <laughs> so we we, as as the name suggests, we're very much focused on understanding causality. And why do we okay. want to understand causality, right? I think that's a that's a. That's a good question. So the company was founded was founded with the goal of optimizing the global economy. Which, if you if you think about it in broader terms, right, it it means that you need to be able to predict and understand a lot of moving parts. So the founders of the company they they have a financial background. They they, they were quantitative traders before. They did have a large understanding of what works and what doesn't in that area, and the the company became um, known uh, very early for being the first, essentially, AutoML provider in the time series space. AutoML for time series is very hard, and in general, machine learning for time series is is a is a very difficult subject, especially when applied to to, to financial data um, because of well, we can go into more detail, but essentially there is very low signal to noise in, in this data. And you do have a large availability of data, uh, which means that essentially uh, there is a lot of overfitting right now, right? And how do you deal with the problem of overfitting? The only way to do that is to really understand what causes what in, in broader terms. So the, this is where the company is right now. Currently, it has, if not the largest, one of the largest research labs in the world specifically designed to tackle causality, um, not only in time series, but more broadly, like more more specifically applied to time series. That is a big challenge. Can
0: I understand quickly, what what do you mean by low signal to noise? Treat me as if I'm dim.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Um,
0: what, What does that actually mean?
1: That, that's, a, that's a very good question because what we need to understand is that whenever you have a causal relation, right? So if I, if I push this glass over the table, it's going to fall and break. There is no ambiguity there. There is no stochasticity there, right? Everything happens in a very deterministic fashion. That's not always the case because if you, if you measure, for instance, the price of a stock, and I'm sorry, it's just I'm used to thinking in terms of finance, so it just comes naturally. Yeah, Please do. or even the movement of pollen in the air, right? That was basically the first uh, application of stochastic, uh, stochastic calculus, especially like when Einstein was looking at the movement of pollen in the in some fluid, right? That that's how uh, Brownian motion was invented. There is a there, there are there is a component which is completely random. Why is it that's random? Because it's impossible for us to be measuring every single interaction that's happening, right? So we do observe from our point of view, some motion that looks like it's flowing very naturally, follows a trend, and then some, you know, random noise on top of that. Okay. And that's typically what you observe in every system that is stochastic by nature, Meaning that, you know, because there is a lot of moving pieces, you don't observe them. You will see some random fluctuations. You you cannot really get rid of them. They're part of what you see. But at the same time, there are also signals. And by signals, what I mean exactly is that there are things that happen for a reason. Yep. And they're going to affect this trend that you observe. Uh, but the way that they affect may be very, very small compared with the overall okay. stochastic nature of the process. I understand. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: your your platform that you've built, causal AI that that helps customize, optimize what they're doing. Sorry, customers optimize what they're doing, <laughs> without obviously betraying any confidence. Uh, are we are we able to understand just a little bit about how that actually works? You don't necessarily need to talk to us about all, all the models that make up that that platform, but it would be useful to understand, I guess, some of what you're looking at, some of what's been built, and maybe how that translates back to your customers. And then we can go on to, I guess, how you help customers.
1: Oh. Yes, perfect. No, I I think that uh, this is a, uh, yeah, I I can definitely go into a lot of detail uh, of without revealing anything that's uh, too too confidential or no, proprietary. Yes, uh, I think that uh, it's worth thinking about breaking down the problem into a bunch of different steps, into uh, how to how to go from you know raw data up until the point where you get value. Right, value depends from person to person. Basically, the idea is the following, right? You, 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 you do have an objective. Typically, the objective would be to either forecast something or to understand the dynamics of something. Okay, And if, if you're a company, you're interested in making shipments uh, from point A to point B, Mm-hmm. Again, there's a lot of moving parts in there, right? You want to predict what is going to be your cost of shipping from point A to point B. If you're responsible for securing the air freight for that, you need to understand what's going to be the cost of that airplane, how many yeah. pallets you're going to be able to put into yeah. the airplane, You know what is going to be your total profit from, from that product. So uh, at the end of the day, it's a lot of little things that you need to predict ahead of time to do that. What we offer is as a first step, right? You need to understand where the signals are. Yeah. If you're willing, if you, if you really want to make uh, shipments from Tokyo to Beijing, perhaps a very strong signal is whether or not you're close to Lunar New Year, right? People are traveling a lot more, people are, you know, uh, offering gifts and things like that. So, but other thing that could be a strong signal for you in terms of predicting a shipment cost is just oil prices. And these are very different types of data sets, right? And you can get very different types of data sets as well if you look into demographics, right? Or if you look into how many online sales Amazon is doing on that area. So you need to merge together all these different data sets and then search extensively through them in order to find what the signals are. That comes into, that begs the question, which is you're going to find a lot of spurious correlations, right? And what are spurious correlations in this sense? For instance, the, the typical example that I give is you want to understand how many, like what is going to be the performance of your solar panels, right? If you have okay. a solar panel here, you want to predict its performance. And you, I, get, I give you like a huge data set with uh, ice cream sales, with how many people are walking in the parks, what is the box office of whatever movie. Uh, you yeah. want to find a lot of correlations to that, right? But it doesn't mean that ice cream sales is is actually uh, a driver of solar panel performance. You only need one data set, which is a sunlight. If you make a model using ice cream sales, it's going to be inherently a worse model, right? If you have sun and ice cream sales in there, it's going to be a worse model than just having sun in there because the model is going to get confused because it's going to see things that are very correlated. It's going to learn to some degree that ice cream sales is a good proxy. Uh, But if tomorrow you know, people stop uh, having ice cream, and just have throw you, or whatever it is, that's a new trend. Shouldn't change the performance of the sonar panels. Well, I hope so, anyway. <laughs> exactly. That would be crazy. Yeah. And so you need to drop ice cream, right? So big data, lots of data is not inherently better for the model. That's a, that's a big fallacy. Actually, oftentimes, less data is much better, precisely because you need to avoid these traps that have to do with overfitting. And that brings us to the next step in our pipeline, which is uh, which is understanding causality. Okay. So we look for signals, we look for for we, we have a huge database of over two million time series of macroeconomic data where we look for signals and the clients they have their own proprietary data sets as well, which okay. we can enrich. And so after we're done with this step, we find the signals, we test the causal relation. Testing causality, that's a new, basically, a new science. It's quite literally a new science that is for the past uh, very few years. I think that the first paper was published around 2017. Although the idea goes back a long time, right? There has been essentially 50 years since Granger uh, was talking about uh, the idea of Granger causality and so on. But this is kind of like very early stage at the moment we have very a lot more sophisticated algorithms that are uh, that are relevant for the world in which you do have many signals many of which carry redundant information yeah and okay. there is a lot of confounders there and i can go into more detail later into yeah. what, what these terms actually mean but uh, yeah l- l- let me have that as a takeaway from this step, which is after you find signals, it's very important for you to test their causal relation to your target okay. in order to get rid of all these sort of spurious correlations. So get rid of all the ice cream seals essentially in your data set. After after we're done with this, we, we need to build models essentially. And the way to build models, you, you can go all the way from a linear regression. Up to like a deep neural network, and that depends on the problem at hand. We try to keep it simple, as simple as possible, for the problem, because the idea is that if you have if you have a strong set of features, if you carefully selected them, if you treated them nicely, did the, the correct transformations, they all. The biggest hurdle is in constructing signals appropriately, constructing okay. features in in the in a very carefully. Once you do that, it's a question of what is the incremental gain in adding more complexity. I think that, once again, a lot of the the new machine learning techniques or the new fashion right now is to throw everything in the neural network with a given architecture. We would like to take a step back and think, okay, from the point of view of clients, that's not always the best. So let's figure out what is the correct level of complexity that we need to add in order to do that. So here we deal with basically all the stack of machine learning models that exist in the literature. In addition to that, we also developed our own proprietary methods that are inherently causal. And let me tell you what I mean by that is that once we find causal relations, uh, what we extract from the data is what we call a causal graph. A causal graph is essentially a visual representation of all the causal relations that you observe in your data and so on. Uh, Essentially, what I'm telling you is that the sun is the causal driver of solar panel performance. At the same time, like clouds is also a causal driver, right? And if you have some extra elements in your data, right, the solar panel performance is going to be a causal driver of the the amount of energy, electricity that are generated your price of electricity. And then you can do this iteratively.
0: Nice. You you said something quite interesting there. Understanding, I guess, the the correct complexity for a customer that you're working with. Can, Can we dive into that a little bit more and just understand maybe how you can do that more and then look at, Um, Some of that correlation between how customers use you to optimize what they're doing. So taking us back to correct complexity, it's a little bit like looking at right tool for the right job or the right architecture for the right team or right domain. Correct complexity and how that correlates to, I guess, um, optimizing what they're doing Or, Um, or showing where they need to improve or whatever else.
1: That's perfect. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a very good way to put it because you, let me put it away, that there is a risk-reward ratio in okay. increasing complexity. A linear regression, if you use the right set of features, is a very riskless, riskless type of, of model. Because you know exactly, you look at it and you 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 can attribute weights in a very straightforward way to your inputs. You you get to understand exactly the counterfactual structure very very easily, right? If I change this, how that's going to change? So there's a very there's a very uh, straightforward attribution of yeah, attribution of variance. Put it away. That means that a lot of customers, they're going to be very happy with the linear model. Even if that means that if I jump into an ensemble model, I get better performance. Uh, why is that? Because there is really a cost in terms of explainability. There is a cost in terms of black boxness, the, the, like opaqueness of the method. So in that sense, let them put it away. We have customers who tell me, Look, I would love to use that advanced method, but uh, at the end of the day, I'm liable for the model risk in what I'm doing, and I need to explain that to the board or to my investors in a way for which the narrative makes sense. So, getting that extra bit of predictive power by considering non linearities in the data or by considering, you know, the that the fact that there is some weird stuff going on here—it's maybe not worth the risk, right? So let's stick to the linear because it gets the job done, yeah. and uh, I can I can easily explain what's going on, right. And that depends a lot as well on what's your what's the ROI for you, right? Well, what kind of return of investment you want to get? Because yeah. if you're a very secretive hedge fund, you don't have to answer to no one. You have your own capital, and for you, I mean, yeah, let's go for it. Let, let me try that, as long as I understand that this is not really overfitting. I mean, it's it's my uh, like mine. It's their responsibility, right? The, theirs and theirs alone. There is that uh, depending on the type of customers, depending on who they're liable for, and depending on what they want to achieve and how difficult that KPI, right, that, that key performance indicator, is then yeah. they might try uh, a bunch of different things. And I think that it's always like it's not really part of the science, but it's more part of the business, like right? the, the the really understanding what their business is, to sit down with them and have their conversation. Like look, this is how far we can go. Uh, this is where I think that the biggest value is going to be. Now tell us yeah. what is the what is the, what is the risk reward ratio for you? How how far do you want to go with the model? and and then carry on from there. Interesting. Okay. If we go
0: slightly off-piste, and we haven't actually discussed this, but obviously over the last 12 months, there's been some interesting changes in some of the markets. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm sure maybe customers have responded well, not so well to some of that. Have you learn a hell of a lot in the last 12 months as well about you as a business, how you research, looking at causality. Have you, have you learned a hell of a lot? Not necessarily on, on the science level or on uh, some of the, the technology, but I think just at a higher level from a business and customer perspective. Have you learned quite a lot?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that the learning experience has been, let me put it away, we learn better how to do forecasting, while at the same time, we understand that right now, customers are not as interested in straight, you know, point in time forecasting as Mm -hmm. they were before. I think that more and more people have more holistic concerns into why things are happening Rather than what is going to happen tomorrow. Just about to say that, yeah. Okay. And, and the second thing that they're interested in is, uh, what if tomorrow this and that happens? So essentially, creating realistic scenarios mm-hmm. that stress their assumptions, that stress their uh, their current uh, exposures has been more and more important. And this is not only related to finance. And here I'm taking a more more global approach to that because finance hasn't been the only business affected, And to some degree, finance is very untouched by what happened in these past 12 months. Other businesses that traditionally weren't so interested in these sorts of questions like retail <laughs> retailers have, have taken a beating this yeah. year. Some of them are beating, some of them are swimming in cash. So like supply chain, right? Supply chain was completely yeah. disrupted. Uh so not, not only because of the pandemic itself, but because of all all of the yeah there's
0: ramifications across a number of different
1: industries because of what's happened. Exactly. Yeah. And so supply chain is completely changing what is going to happen if tomorrow there is a policy change that completely blocks this or that country out of the supply chain, what if this country enters the supply chain? Uh, what if the price of this commodity rises to, I don't know, 200 uh, yeah. percent? These are very pertinent questions right now for any company that is involved uh, in this business that like, essentially have a lot of moving parts and exposure to the global economy as a whole. So th- th- this has been more or less a shift. And like I think that from our point of view, we invested a lot into causal inference technology, which is a step beyond what, what I was describing for, which is we understand what a causal structure is, or at least we, we, we have an idea that like we want to test this hypothesis. So let's build models that eat this causal structure and then eat you essentially a machine. That allow you to that will allow you to ask counterfactual questions because we know that there are a lot of moving parts right so we know that this node right here which is you know I don't know GDP in this country is affecting like some manufacturing metric which is affecting these and so now how does yeah. this percolate in a way that's consistent right in a way that I'm not just percolating spurious correlations across uh, the, this graph so this is has been one of the main successes in the past year, which is for us to understand how to consistently create these causal inference mechanisms, which allow customers to ask these what-if questions. And then essentially, instead of forecasting the future, try to create scenarios that actually make sense, that are explainable in nature, and then measure their KPIs against the outcome of, of these scenarios.
0: It's quite interesting to hear uh, the diversification of the platform, actually. Learning about you about a year ago, uh, I think I saw a tagline somewhere predicting global economy. I thought, wow, hang on, this this sounds like someone like Warren Buffett. Hang on a (laughs) tick. But actually, tweaking some of the complexity, if we talk about supply chain and we talk about finance, they have their own different challenges because of what's happened, So I think it's really interesting that you can offer customers that risk versus reward ratio on uh, their different, if you like, challenges and show them this is what you can do. And this is, I guess, some of the challenges that you potentially um, could bump into, but this is the reward on the other side of it, not just saying this is black and white, this is what you'll achieve. Mm-hmm. or this is what you won't achieve exactly. so i'm I'm, intre- I'm i am interested in the diversification that's cool
1: i like that yeah yes indeed i think it's it's important for instance for businesses as well to realize that look you're not an island right you're exposed to all these other things and the sooner you want to send your exposures you don't need to predict what's going to happen tomorrow you just need to be very well prepared yeah. for you know scenarios that are very realistic and the set of realistic scenarios has expanded quite exponentially in the past yes. 12 months so, yeah uh, can, can you share with
0: us some of not necessarily names but i guess industries that that you're helping at the moment or have we covered them
1: yes the industries are financials, right, all the way from the largest pension funds in, in the United States, uh, very large banks as well, some, you know, very proprietary, I mean, some prop funds, essentially, they're playing with their own money, they they have their own technology. So we barely yeah. know what they are doing, to be fair, they, they are just uh, using our technology in the background. Real estate as well has been a major, major one. Uh, yeah. especially uh, considering what is going on in terms of the dispersion within commercial real estate and I mean who, who knows what's going to happen to offices tomorrow right so this is a it's a very pertinent questions at the moment for, for real estate and uh, and then going going away from investment more into the, the supply side uh, we have well, we do have retailers uh, we are helping retailers at the moment like retailers like all the way from physical to technology yep. retailers, and one of the one of my the new success that we've had is also helping uh, with healthcare. Essentially, one of the the interesting aspects of healthcare is to understand if you're running clinical trials, right? You have two sets: you have the placebo set, you have the test set, and then within the test set, you compute statistical measures and then measure the effectiveness of your intervention, which is like a very scientifically rigorous way of doing things, but at the same time, this is a lot of like what's idiosyncratic to that person that made that person respond well to this treatment against that of the person who completely failed right because let me like, put it away measure like statistical averages they may not uh, represent the whole population in a, in a straightforward way right you have you can have very bivariate type of of uh of distributions in your test set. For instance, if you have men and women, men and women may respond very differently to your intervention. But in average, uh, that affects uh, to, to something that's unrealistic. So to understand better what causes this dispersion is is one new area of work for us that has been very successful. Uh,
0: how how do your technical challenges? correlate with I guess customers challenges. if there is correlation or understanding at least some of your own technical challenges.
1: I think that would be really cool to explore. Yeah, I, I think this is a that's an interesting question because a lot of innovation happens because someone asked a question that hadn't <laughs> been asked before. Someone came up with a data set that was just insane and we need to to really do a lot of work ourselves to understand that so to to be faced with challenging questions is always a good thing for us because it helps us realize that uh, we need to need to grow and then we need to adapt our technology i I think that the let me let me give you two examples right on the very low data right people talk about big data all the time but small data That's a challenge in itself because a lot of these industries they are built on data that is sparsely available, that is often noisy and not collected with the best degree of accuracy. Take uh, real estate for instance, right? This has been one of the most successful areas for us in the past year, precisely because machine learning uh, is completely useless in real estate typically because of this overfeeding. You have generally quarterly data, if not like annual data. And yep. typically you have many data sets. It's very it's very difficult to, to really go through a lot of data sets that are very sparse and then to understand what really causes what. So yep. th- this was one of the technical challenges that we embraced and I said, look, we need to fix this. We yep. need to develop technology to essentially make sensible forecasts and and to allow us to understand the causal structure within the variables that are related to real estate. So so it's a very this is like completely different from the typical machine learning problem, which is okay. I have a lot of data, right? How do I ingest it here? It's completely opposite. Right? I have very low data. What what can I make of this data? And then on the other hand, you do have the big data problems. And the big data problems they typically come on the on the shape of Right, look, I have technology constraints in ingesting this big data. I have uh, scientific constraints because like if I measure low correlation, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no causal relation right, and sometimes right. high correlation means i mean doesn't mean anything that there's okay. no causal relation there, so typically. Like the, the these sorts of issues, they they come to us with a very well defined business background, right? With a very well defined KPI, and then the challenge for us is to really translate this into a data problem, and then actually understand scientifically what we need to do in order to solve them. So so yes, and I, I I'll go back to to the past twelve months and I say that for us the Technically, the biggest thing in the past twelve months hasn't really been on the forecasting side. I okay. mean, to some degree, we we need to we need to understand better how to how to make forecasts that work on this small data because, like, I mean, we're living in a completely different regime right now. Yeah, but yeah. it has been more on like like how how to translate. Forecasts into KPIs and how to better optimize KPIs given the forecast, and how to understand the risk, the inherent risk for your KPIs given all these scenarios that are you know, possible to happen tomorrow.
0: Nice. Okay. Talk to us a little bit about what could happen for the business over the next 12 months. You talk about there's growth, mm-hmm. there's obviously a massively interesting scale at the moment with what you're doing uh, just the, the sheer amount of uh, of data that you're ingesting i can imagine there's there's all sorts of fun challenges to get your teeth into exactly like you just explained what what do you expect yeah even if you can't think ahead to the next 12 months the rest of this year what, what do you think the business will try and go on to do?
1: Absolutely. So uh, I, uh, here I will separate the business side from the science side. And maybe I can give you an answer, uh, one one different yeah. answer for both of them. Because let me start with the business side because I'm on the business side, right? Although at core I'm a scientist, uh, you know, the first priority always, always is uh, providing value. And then on the business side, yeah, our mission is to expand right now. And to help as many industries as we can, and to really understand uh, how to cement this interplay between the business and the science. Right? That we have a we have a new growing science that is very young to some degree, uh, yeah. and it's it has been uh, a very interesting process for us to understand how to get that science, get that paper that appeared yesterday, like was just published yesterday, turning into something usable, understand how it can be used for, for that specific problem, and then maybe two weeks from now, uh, have a product that is ready for deployment that is going to help a client. So so on the business side, that's a, that's a goal, which is to uh, be nimble and be quick, expand, while at the same time, keeping in mind that our differentiating factor is a science. And then we need to be we need to be very, very flexible in understanding how well those the new science that comes up can affect uh, business outcomes and then, on the science side right, I, I think that it, it has been more and more apparent for all practitioners that the current state of machine learning is essentially. Undergoing a revolution, I think yeah. that we, we're really on the on the edge of a revolution when it comes to machine learning. Uh, we, we like to we, we like to think of machine learning in the sense that there is like a barrier, right, Free and post causal modeling. And it's it's like if you think of science back in the seventeenth century, right? You know, people were looking, gazing at the stars, gazing at the movement of the planets, and then you know, you had these beautiful models like the epicycles, that had a lot of moving parts, and they were beautiful at predicting the movement of the planets, but yep. they were completely useless beyond <laughs> that, because like uh, you know you 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 it is really a curve-fitting exercise, right? Essentially, you're looking at them movement of the planets create this crazy model that has the Earth in the center. But it, it took like a lot of guts for a lot of people to go and claim, look, I mean, the Earth is not the center of the universe, get rid of that. And then only when Newton appeared with an actual like dynamic scientific explanation for gravity, right? Newton, Kepler, all of these guys, is that you have a model that was... Both predictive, but also allowed you to start asking meaningful questions, right? You understand that the apple that falls from the tree, that's exactly the same dynamics that's driving the movement of all the planets. So even though the epicycles, they were like this beautiful, curve-fitting yeah. exercise, like you, you needed that extra bit of input for you to really understand what was going on. And I think that statistical learning, machine learning, that is incredibly useful and has basically transformed our society in the past 20 years. But to make that jump, and maybe another thing that we haven't discussed as well, which will be very interesting to, to go into, which is fairness and safety, right? To, to make that jump in a way that's fair and, and controlled, we really need to dig deeper into producing uh, techniques. That are causal in nature, that have a fixed dynamic uh, embedded in them. Talk, talk to me about fairness and safety. Yes, to talk to me about it. Yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> no, and that's a that's a like fairness. That's a major major topic in machine learning. You can understand it the following way, right? It's very simple. So you go to a bank, you ask for a loan. It's gonna collect all sorts of metadata from you. Where mm-hmm. you live, how much money you earn, oh. who are your parents, like what's your favorite flavor of ice cream. So all these sort of things are being collected, by the way.
0: And, and that yeah. corresponds to the, the solar panel as well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> they, they know all of that. And, and it's exactly the solar panel problem, right? Which is like, does the flavor of ice cream you eat affect your likelihood to pay you back? And then you tell me, okay, this is crazy. Why am I hearing about that? But there, there are things in there that are very, very dangerous, right? If you, if you think about the, if you go to America, right, which, I mean, going back to the conversation we were having offline, uh, you have all these social issues. Many of them are, are racially related because of the history of the country. And because of the history of the country, there is a lot of segregation that happens when it comes to zip codes, right? You have neighborhoods which are traditionally uh, very, very racially segregated unfortunately and if you if you give your zip code to a bank and they use your zip code to estimate your likelihood to default on your on your loans and therefore uh that might affect how mm. much interest you're going to pay on your loans, that is a very tricky subject and a lot of people have been have been writing uh, essentially about the perils of machine learning you know and apply to to these issues. And this is not the only example. There are many, many other examples in which what we think are very naive machine learning, like what's like a data scientist coding, like this beautiful uh, XGBoost model in the background may actually have extremely negative impacts socially and actually accentuate these types of uh, social issues that we have right now. And, And that is without going into this whole mess of how... You know, algorithms are basically changing the way we think, like social media is putting together, you know, people that are anti vaxxers and what kind of consequence that may have for the cool. world as a whole because of that. Question. So, you talk
0: about, uh, I'm just trying to imagine the situation. So, I, I could be slightly wrong here, but are there ways or is this a practice that you actually counter the models that you've built? So, You talk about it's a nice environment and engineers are building models that they think are, let's just use the word, acceptable. Mm -hmm. Could you counter those models and say, well, actually, what if, if we use that banking example Mm -hmm. of using the zip code example, could you just flip it essentially and say, well, what if? that there is potential issues for someone to be able to get a bank loan or paying high interest rates? Or is it you just look at, I guess, not necessarily the correctness, but you're looking at, I guess, the solution or the KPI. You've built something, and it's your job just to step away from it. I'm just thinking about your fairness example are there practices that are designed to flip what we're building mm-hmm. to ensure that we're, we're trying to be inclusive or fair? <laughs> or is that something that's constantly evolving right now? Or am I just off-paced and I probably need to... No,
1: no. I think that's a, that's a good question, right? Because you, you, we do identify a problem. The problem exists and the problem is in production. So how to do that? So Typically, the way that people that people try to counter this problem is for they measure a posteriori what the model is doing. Mm. And typically, the model is a black box, right? Which means that you have input, box, output. So this is everything that you see. So you measure input, you measure the sensitivity of your output with respect to the input. And then you come up with an explanation for what the model is doing based on that. So this is an a posteriori type of explanation, right? In the in the case of the epicycle, it's like you're moving your engine, right? And then you see the planets moving in there. You only know what the planet is going to do after you move your engine, right? You cannot say a priori that this is going to happen sure. because there is a lot of moving parts. You can only see the output. Okay, now what we, what we want to do and what we have done is the following is to say, look, this is nonsense. You need to have an a priori type of explainability. You need to be able to prove, as you prove a theorem, that if you change a protected class in your model, if you change someone's gender, if you change some, someone's race, the yeah. output is going to remain the same, right? It should be an invariance or like a completely like completely invariant of the model, right? You shouldn't even have to think a posteriori about the fact that this is going to be realized because you can prove it as a theorem that this is a constraint that you can put in a model. And, yeah. and th- this has been another use case that, uh, that was massive for us, which is the understanding that you can use this causal structure for you to say, look, a cannot possibly be a causal driver of b and the model will respect that right it's it's really as if it's a theorem and so the the way to go forward is really for you to understand okay here are all the moving parts here are the moving parts that are protected and your model needs to respect this protection nice okay i I
0: like that that's a good explanation I, i can digest that i'm i'm not super science. So I've got to hold my hands up and, and ask him questions at times or try and explain it anyway. Um, but before we wrap up, is, is there anything that you want to share with us that you think is particularly even more compelling about the business, learning more about you and, and following and understanding the business since the summer of last year, You know, I've been dying to get you guys on. We're obviously here. We're obviously going to create something that people can learn more about you. We've learned a little bit about science. We've learned a little bit about causality. And I think it's just been a fascinating listen to understand how you're helping some of your customers across different industries. And I think even going back to clinical trial example, more examples than I think meet the eye sometimes. So I think that's been really nice to see. There's uh, For everyone listening, there's going to be lots of content below. There's going to be Andre's LinkedIn page, so you can check him out. And please reach out to the guys and girls. Please reach out to the guys and girls. And Andre, do you want to tell us a little bit actually about maybe that compelling point, if there is anything else that you want to share, but also uh, across science and tech, what are you going to be hiring for? If people are listening... What are you going to be hiring for that you need
1: to strengthen in the business around? Well, thank you. Thank you for, for that. Uh, it's, been, it's been a great experience being mm-hmm. here. And yeah, the, these are very pertinent topics. I mean, not only from a business point of view, but also the science is interesting. The engineering yeah. behind it is is very, very interesting. Like A lot of thought went through actually uh, understanding what is the best way to, to create a backend that can support uh, not only the big data, but all the yeah. machine learning parts and all the causal uh, infrastructure that we need. And to end on a positive note, right, because we talked a lot about the perils of machine learning, how we're trying to fix that. But I, I think that the, the best way that I can end this in a compelling way is following, right? So ultimately, the goal is to build a battle. And uh, sometimes people get distracted by, you know, the problem at hand, but at the end of the day, if you have a more, if you have a world that's fair, uh, if you have a world that's uh, more efficient, right? We're not wasting resources on things that ultimately do not serve anyone. And I mean, we, we, we had a lot of success as well with governments, right? Trying to allocate resources to reduce conflict. That's a very like AI for good type of thing that that actually has real world impacts. And is also it has massive implications in terms of resource allocation, right? You need to understand what works and what doesn't. And I think this type of scientific revolution is what we need in, in machine learning. And I think that people need to start thinking about how to really combine the power of statistical learning, power of machine learning, power of what we call artificial intelligence in general, with a more nuanced view of like what what is the underlying dynamic in my system yeah. right and try to focus more on understanding the underlying dynamic instead of you know just going through that curve fitting exercise over and over again and that's where the real revolution is gonna come from is to really understand underlying dynamics of the data so we're actively hiring in all fronts we're looking for engineers uh, to help us build the infrastructure uh, in my group we're looking for talented people who not only have a passion for uh, data science, but also want to understand the business problems, want to understand the economy and how to help the clients. And also on the peer research side, right, uh, we are actively looking for people who have some experience in time series, who want to help uh, develop the science even further and and to actually think about it in more practical terms, right? How can this science be used in general I love that ladies and gents
0: I think you heard it the the scientific revolution for a better world exactly as succinct as that everyone uh, links below reach out to Andre um, give it a like share mention with your friends family anyone that you think could be interested in like andre said uh, building for a better world and i just want to say a big thanks you've been awesome super clear concise and you know thanks for coming to take the time to talk to us i thank do you really work. much Elliot. it was a pleasure and thank you very much for having me pleasure peace and love everyone enjoy Hey guys, thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io these links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to
1: improve on where we can. Thanks guys.